peace, peace, and welcome to another installment of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we can change our year, we can change our life. Miss Dr. Tracy Durant is one of the national leading figures in this fight and push to achieve equity in our schools. She's doing the good work in the great city of Baltimore. I'm excited to uh, learn more about why on earth did she decide to get into this stuff, <laughs> what she's learned along the way. I had the privilege of talking to her briefly before, and I know her passion for what she's doing is authentic, and, and uh, she's going to need it. Um, so, Dr. Durant, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I happen to have caught in, our, in your accent, you're from Baltimore. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I heard it in how you say Baltimore. <laughs> okay. yeah. I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Tell, us, tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Um, so, you know, as you said, I am from, I am a native Baltimorean, um, educated um, here in Baltimore City Public Schools. Um, actually grew up, um, like a lot of our, our students, um, in uh, marginalized, you know, community. And, and certainly this is not language I would have used growing up, but this is, you know, how they refer to, um, to where I lived and uh, kind of our neighborhoods and what we had access to and not. And so I know now that it was, um, we were considered a vulnerable community, um, probably would have been considered an at-risk youth. Um, my mom took ill when I was very young. And so I had to live with different family members at times. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting time because one of the things that I know about um, communities like the one that I grew up in and, and what family does is we kind of all, you know, envelop the, the young people in the, in the community. And so for me, school was an outlet. It was a place where I was safe. Um, I was, interestingly, in middle school, I was, I was picked on a lot. I was bullied a lot because a lot of people in my school had relatives who had gone there or had siblings and it was just me. Um, and because my mom was ill off and on, um, you know, I, I was picked on a lot. I, I remember those days vividly. But what I also remember is that I had um, a couple of teachers who made sure to keep me safe. Um, they, you know, let me stay in after um, the, the school day ended and let me come to school early. And so I was the one who, you know, I think we used to call them teachers pet. I would, you know, clean the chalkboards and you know, clean the erasers and all of that. And um, I did that in middle school and then had an opportunity. Well, one would say it was an opportunity. I was considered a high potential young person because I was, um, you know, considered bright and I went to school every day. And so I went to a private school, um, a boarding school for my ninth and 10th grade year. And, you know, I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but when you opened, you said, kind of why in the world I would choose to do this work. And so what's interesting to me now is that I had a lot of those experiences growing up and they all put me on the trajectory to be sitting in the space of doing equity work right now. Um, some of the experiences I had in that um, private school, um, predominantly white school being one of, you know, a handful of individuals who were of color, particularly black, um, being poor, you know, and, you know, coming from a place of poverty, going to a place where there was a lot of privilege was really a different um, experience for me. And some of the trauma that I had to endure 
Um, I didn't know it then, but I certainly know now put me on this path to be doing equity work in, in 2020. I was joking about uh, why on earth would you do this work? And I was joking about your accent. I love the Baltimore accent. Uh, you know, it's like I love the like the, the New York accent and the Chicago accent, too. And, um, and so you go from uh, having these great connections to your teachers and you also sort of mentioned, uh, you know, referring to your upbringing and words you would now use. Can you can you dive a little deeper on what you mean by that? Like why the words need to change? Yeah. So I think that I mean, I think it's for um, the reasons that what we are setting up right are these um, ways that we use language that make the problem um, be the fault of those people who are in those circumstances instead of the systems and structures that would allow that to be so. Right. Um, you know, in, in 2020, we have a lot of those neighborhoods where um, where I either grew up or spent time that look very much the same way that they did, you know, in the 80s. And they, they look very much the same way. Um, they, they look worse now, right, because there has been historic lack of investment and, and disinvestment in those communities, right? And so what happens oftentimes is it becomes about people in those neighborhoods not choosing to do better or not wanting to do better instead of talking about the you know lack of employment opportunities or the conditions of the school systems or the fact that um, you know they're sitting in the middle of food deserts right and you know there is no there are no financial institutions all of those things contribute to why communities are vulnerable it's not the people <laughs> that make the community vulnerable the bodies they're in it is the systems and structures we have in place that allowed it to be so. And I think so much of this becomes about um, not wanting to really interrogate um, how those systems and structures function every day um, so that we can like truly disrupt and dismantle. I mean, my whole, the, the words I use all the time are, has to be about disrupting and dismantling and creating something new. Because honestly, um, for as long as, you know, urban cities have, have been around, if we go all the way back to, you know, the history of redlining, you know, in our nation, it's not by surprise that the neighborhoods look the way they look, that the school system looks the way that it looks, like the, the buildings look the way they look like that. That's not a surprise. It's actually, you know, by design. If we look at in Baltimore in particular, we can look at the streets, you know, the, the red line still exists, even in terms of where um, our students go to our selective schools or who ends up in advanced academics. There is, we have our own red line. Our CEO says it all the time. And so it's still the language that's used today. But I think um, certainly in my adult mind, recognizing what that meant um, and recognizing even in an attempt to um, put me on a path that would give me the best opportunity, it was always about taking me out of the community. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it, it wasn't like that could happen in our community. It was take me out of the community, send me to a place in our in our state that I didn't even know existed. Right. I didn't even know these places existed. And this idea that in order for the education to be worth something, that I had to be surrounded by, you know, white people. I had to be surrounded by people who were very affluent. And so the idea that none of that could happen in my community is still resonant today. And, and that's what I'm working to, to try to disrupt. I also believe that in order to advance, I needed to, and I'm not saying that this is exactly what you said, but when you brought that up around like this being around white people in order to advance, it reminded me of a similar mindset that I had that first took some internal dismantling. Like I, I was like, okay, I'm trying to escape this neighborhood. 
and I want to be considered elite and prestigious. And so I had to go into these white uh, exclusive places to accomplish that. And not only do I have to do that, I have to, you know, disown where I came from in order to like make sure that I get there. And then that, and then I'm there and I'm like, oh, oh, this like some internal hatred and killing happened for me to like, whoa, you know, my consciousness changed. For you, what was that point where you were like, whoa, something wrong with the way I'm thinking about this? And, and how did you, what did you do? So, you know, it, it's probably going to be hard for me to put my finger on it because certainly so much of this, and this is the, this is the danger of um, when this happens for people of color, because we get used to navigating the spaces, right? And so we don't really recognize the way that we've internalized the oppression or we've internalized the harm. And so um, I, I said I started at the private schools, but I didn't stay there. So I ended up going to um, a public school in Baltimore City, which is where I went for my junior and senior year. And, um, you know, I found more of a, of a place there. But honestly, I think it was when I went to um, college. So I started at one institution and then transferred um, to another. And when I went to um, Sojourner Douglas College, which is no, which no longer um, is open. But when I went there, two of the classes um, that you take when you go are called, well, they were called education seminar and psychology of um, racism and then psychology of the black family. So three classes. In, in um, the education seminar class, the first two books that you read are Pedagogy of the Oppressed and The Miseducation of the Negro. It's the first two books you read. And so I will tell you, reading those books in 2020 certainly land on me differently than they did the first time that I read them. Because, you know, they say when the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And so I didn't even know what to do with what I was learning in, in those two books, right? I didn't even understand like the that there is a psychology to the Black family and that it's actually not rooted in deficit, right? There is so much beauty in how Black families operate and, and honoring that. And so recognizing that I had been holding this deficit, right, um, started to happen for me then, but it really wasn't until I started um, doing equity work. It, it really wasn't until, and I, and I didn't plan to do equity work, to be completely honest with you. I had always been working with populations that were like me, that were considered you know, vulnerable and marginalized. So I worked in a college access program, and that program was designed to help students who would ordinarily not have access to college navigate the process, right? And so I was doing that kind of work um, in nonprofit. And then I went to work with an organization with nonprofits. And then when I worked at the community college, I worked in, um, you know, developmental education. So I worked in stu with students who needed remedial education. So I'd always been doing this similar kind of work. Um, but it was actually, I was doing a temporary thing around some evaluating of grants in an equity office in the school district in Baltimore County. During that process, in the transition from me being just like a contractor or a consultant, if you will, and going to do some more work in the office, we spent time on internalized oppression. We spent time on recognizing how domination and subordination work. We spent time on interrogating how are you complicit in the outcomes that we're getting, right? How are you holding up um, white supremacy and anti-blackness? So we had to do internal work to be able to teach and facilitate our facilitate workshops with our colleagues. And you can't do equity work absent that process. People, people will do it, 
people try to do it. There's a lot of scholarship around it and people can read books and talk about all of that. But doing equity work is not something you do. It's, it's who you are. Like it's a way of being. And you only do that by being really deep and reflective about how you come to understand what race has meant in your life and how it has shaped everything about who you are. And so for me, that was when I really started to lean in um, to how significant this work is and, and how much it impacts um, families and young people and, and communities. And so that is that is part of how I got here. Yeah. And I, and, and I do want to get into uh, where the work is now in Baltimore. I, I know it was created out of a board resolution and, you know, you were doing it beforehand in our initial conversation. One of the things that I, before before we recorded the podcast, one of the things that I one of the things we talked about was um, this misconception of, of who are the the holders of white supremacy, like one that I think you that I, that I sort of wanted you, I want you to get your take on. And what I mean by that, when you think about San Francisco, uh, its black population is dwindled considerably as a result of you know urban renewal, gentrification. And our achievement gap in our city is the largest in the state of California in our public schools. And, um, and you know, in Baltimore's public school system is somewhere between 89% African-American, if I remember correctly. And uh, one of the things you often hear about how do we advance equity work is we need to hire more black people, right? And... And so that's, that becomes a policy conversation here. Like, how do we hire more Black people? Black people in leadership can end up being, like, great holders of white supremacy. And so the Baltimore personnel picture isn't, as, isn't the same as the San Francisco one, right? There's more Black people just in general. So there are more Black people in leadership at the mayor's office, et cetera. Can you speak to why that perception, why you think it exists and what needs to happen even in all black spaces to see that this works? I mean, so the, re- the reality is um, when we talk about, so we talk about the, the historical context of, of race and how it shaped our nation, right? Part of it is we have a considerable investment in lies we like to tell ourselves about who we are, who we have been as a nation. And part of it is, if you've been acculturated here, you cannot be void of internalizing oppression. Like all of us have internalized oppression, white people and people of color. And so when you think about how internalized oppression works, there is dominance and there's subordinates. There is somebody who's got to play the role. And the way that we uphold that um, is by not knowing it's a thing. It's like telling a fish it's in water. You don't have to. It just is. And so what sometimes happened, particularly in, in my experience with people of color, so some of the most dangerous people for black children are black folk. And especially those of us who are middle class, those of us who kind of made it out, especially if we share the same circumstances. So I grew up poor, you know, I grew up in the hood, like I can relate to the kids and, you know, I got to be tough on them. Like this is, you know, cause the world is not going, you know, uphold them and like all of that kind of stuff. Right. And some of that is situated in good intent. Some of that is situated in, like, I want I want better for you. The problem is that if it were just easy to just, you know, you know, snap my finger and all of this to be different, who wouldn't want that? The problem is that when you make it out, you somehow forget 
like what it really means to make it out, right? And so the danger comes in when we try to blame young people in particular, you know, since I'm in education, we try to blame them for the circumstances that they're in or even their families are in when there is generational context to why your neighborhood looks the way that it looks, why your mother has to work two, three, four jobs and is still not earning enough to make ends meet. Why in the middle of COVID, some of the people who are um, the most vulnerable are the ones who are essential workers and or are on the front lines and what that means for a family and like who we prioritize as being worthy of certain kinds of protection and not, right? So the, the, the challenge becomes when you are a person of color, recognizing that you can also be complicit in bringing harm, even well-intended, right? And those are often not conversations we have in community. The other thing is you can't serve people that you that you despise. And, and some of our folks just really got the wrong calling. Like some, some of them, I wouldn't put my, my children in a classroom with them, right? Um, there are things that I, that I see happen, particularly on social media, where you may not name the student or the family that you're talking about, but when you say certain things about how the child looks or their hair or any number of things, or I wish these parents would do this, or I wish these parents would do that. You may not name the child, but you're naming somebody's child. You may not name the parent, but you're naming somebody's parent. And this inherent belief that well, they, they don't care anything about their kids. A lot of that language comes from people who look like me. Now, certainly it comes from white people, but I'm not white. I'm talking about what's in my, you know, in my skin. I hear that stuff from people who look like me. And it's like, you cannot despise, you cannot serve people that you despise. And so for some of us, we, we got to do a whole lot of work in, in, in terms of why we feel the way that we feel and then really interrogate that so much of that has everything to do with the enslavement of our people and, and what we came to learn about um, each other, you know, in particular. And so I think that in cities where there are more people of color, in cities where the mayor is black and the police commission is black. I remember that was the topic of conversation when the uprising happened here in 2015, when Freddie Gray was murdered. Um, it was, but the police commission is black and the mayor is black and this person's black and all these black people. So how can this be about race? And it's like the dehumanization of, of a black man is why, you know, we can't, we can't even agree that this is murder. And so that was 20, you know, 15 and it's, it's 2020 and we have more of the same. Um, and so, the question is, um, for me in this moment, like, I don't need to see another video. I don't need to see another. Yeah, I don't need to see another one because I know the insidious nature of how we dehumanize people who look like me every day. And I don't need a video to show me that. And so the question is, why do you need a video? <laughs> right. And then the other questions that come up, well, what were they doing? And it, no, it's like, no, there should just be a standard by which how about we just gonna hold everybody's humanity? And and I think that um, for people of color who have not done the work of understanding how we've all been impacted um, is really critical. I had a I have a, a friend who I'll never forget the day she said to me, you know, you have a PhD in whiteness. It it would it it shook me to my core because I was attributing that to I said I'm the blackest black person I know. What you mean? You know. Um, I'm always repping my hood. I always say where I'm from, you know, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, I do all the black family stuff. What you mean? Um, 
And she said, you got to think about it. You know, I had a doctorate by the time I was 29. So what that tells you is I was really clear that I was going to need degrees and pieces of paper to be able to move, right? Because I knew that I would not be my, my, my scholarship, my intelligence, my brilliance, my confidence. None of that would have been recognized for me. I'm thinking, you know, I got to get these degrees and that's why I was grinding like I was. And so, you know, even where, you know, we chose to try to put our kids and send them to school and that kind of thing was all rooted in this idea that I got to have them in these environments, these white environments for them to be able to be, be successful. Right. So that was my own, that was kind of my own stuff. And she said, you wouldn't be sitting in the position you're sitting in if you didn't understand how to navigate whiteness, if you didn't understand how to play the game, if you were. The problem is that a whole lot of us don't know there's a game being played. You're preaching. <laughs> um, well, one of, one of the a few of the things that I wanted to dive deeper on. Uh, so in, in San Francisco, I just introduced a, a resolution mandating Black Studies K-12 through that, that also looks at the Black experience through a lens of like liberation, right? What the people that who are listening can't see behind me, like in the corner, there's a copy of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And uh, I'm doing all that knowing that like once it's, once it's implemented, the problem won't be solved just because I have the book doesn't mean I don't also advance some of the, some of this stuff. It doesn't mean that like, you know, I'm like absolved of uh, some of the issues that you're raising. And, and one of the big things that I, I keep harping on or, tr- or, or looking to reject is this notion that achieving representation is going to solve racism. The fact that we have these positions means that collectively we'll do better. Or the fact that somebody's on the ticket that's black is a reason for us to celebrate or like our conditions are going to improve, you know? And then, and, and so how do we do a C shift where that's my, that's my point of focus. Like where is the C shift going to come where the conditions are the focus? And the conditions changing are the focus over the person achieving the thing being the focus. So you're trying to move work where the conditions will shift, right? Uh, in Baltimore, you're the first, correct if this is not accurate, the first leader uh, district-wide of, of, of equity. And, um, and so can you talk a little bit about like the office and uh, you know, how it got started, why, why you took the job? So yeah, um, I um, was was invited to um, apply for the position in 2018. And what I will tell you is, two years before um, they authorized the position and decided to move forward, the board of our our commissioners had already been talking about this idea of you know having an equity policy, an equity statement, an equity commitment. You know what what they needed had to do something. Um, our current CEO who had, who had just come, right. So she was, um, she just started her second contract with the, with the district prior to that, she was our chief academic officer. So she's had history, you know, in Baltimore, um, city. And so then she went to do some work at, at trust. And so then she was brought back as a CEO and, um, you know, she would have to tell her own story, but I know that she was getting a lot of pressure initially to just do an equity policy or start an equity office. And so she wanted to make sure that the organization, um, there was some readiness done because I think there had been a couple of fits and starts with trying to introduce, introduce this. But if the board and the leadership 
is not ready to flank the work, it's going to be really difficult for any person to shepherd it, to try to move it, right? And I think our CEO understood that. And so she did some some um, some exhibits around redlining. So undesigning the red line in Baltimore City. And I want to say, I, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, but I'm almost, sure she, I'm almost sure she mandated it for all the leaders in the organization, like to go through this exhibit because she wanted people to have some sense of it is not by accident the way our numbers look in our district, right? So she did that work. And then in 2018, um, I had some conversations about applying for the job. And and I can share this story publicly because I've shared it publicly before. And, and the CEO knows that I tell the story. I had no desire to work in Baltimore City schools. Even being a Baltimore City native, even being um, a graduate of Baltimore City schools, I had no desire to work in Baltimore City schools. And I had no desire to work in Baltimore City schools because I was afraid. I was not sure whether the district was ready because I knew. In Baltimore City, we were going to have to call out internalized oppression. I knew we were going to have to call out white supremacy. We were going to have to call out anti-blackness. Like we were going to have to say things publicly that, in my estimation, had not been said before, right? I didn't want to come to Baltimore City and be further part of the problem. That's not what I wanted to do. Not for my home city, right? I wanted to make sure that I could come here and in my best effort, I could get it right. Because I know what's on the line, right? I know how this is a matter of life and death for the children we serve in Baltimore City and for our families, right? And so I was terrified. Um, So I had probably more conversations with the CEO than she probably should have allowed me to have with her, just kind of picking her brain. Like, tell me what your vision is. Tell me what you want to see happen. Tell me what you're ready for. Um, Tell me where the board is, because... In order for you to have my back, the board needs to have your back. Is the board ready? Like, do they know what this is ready to mean? And so we had a lot of conversations. And, you know, I went, of course, through the interview process. I think before she she made the offer official, I said to her, um, job description aside, tell me what you need from the person in this seat. I get the policy. I get implementation. I get we got to change outcomes. I get all of that. You know, we got to deal with the over-identification of black and and brown kids, particularly boys in special education. We got to deal with the disproportionality and suspension. We got to deal with the under-identification in gifted and talented and advanced academics. Like I get all of those things, but tell me who you need in the person in the seat. And what she invited me to do was to be a thought partner, um, to push, you know, to let's push each other, to call each other in, to really help do something that we had not done before, to be really transformative. And so, you know, certainly I accepted the position, so I'm here. Um, we moved very rapidly. Um, when I came on board, it was November of 2018. I knew that our goal was to have a policy adopted in by June of 2019. We were very deliberate and intentional that we were going to have this policy adopted so that the next year, we could really start with implementation. And so we had a unanimous vote by our board to approve our policy. Um, It is the first one that has been on the books. And we explicitly call out the need to disrupt and dismantle system and structures that have over time afforded advantages to some students while disadvantaging our students of color. We call it out in the policy. 
Um, we say that it is a direct contradiction to our stated values and beliefs. We say that we are looking to, you know, create a new system, a new structure that will um, serve our students. We say that we know that the answers are in Baltimore. We have some of the most um, brilliant people, you know, in our buildings, in our offices. I mean, these folks work really, really hard. So it's not a question of people's desire. I don't think people get up and say, I'm going to harm a kid today. Like, I don't think that's what happens. But when you don't know you're part of a system, systems don't change until people do. So I've got to be different so that I can be different in my role so that I can then impact the system. Most organizations in my experience and the work that I do with, with some of my um, with some of my partners, most organizations are intolerant of the personal work that has to be done before you can get to some of the more technical aspects. So we can say we want to you know, increase the number of black and brown students who are in advanced academics and we can do all kinds of things. And we can change composite scores and we can do lotteries or we can just mandate that there has to be a certain number of students in those spaces. What happens to the students in those spaces is a whole different thing. Like, who is the teacher? Like, who does the teacher have to be to make sure that they are readying the space for those students to have the same opportunity to, to be successful? But here's the deal. We don't even know what giftedness looks like in Black children. That's not with the dominant curriculum and teacher prep programs, that's not what teacher prep programs teach. They don't teach about giftedness in Black students. They don't teach about giftedness in English learners. They teach those things from a deficit perspective, which means we get teachers coming in with that perspective. And so then we've got to shift in your mindset, right? And so all of those things can contribute to what we're doing. So we're really excited. We're entering year two of our policy um, implementation. We um, had a lot of uh, our folks in our um, introduction to racial equity seminar that we started. We've done a lot of, um, you know, sessions, if you will, around cultural dominance and um, whiteness, and we're doing work around bias. And so we're, we're moving as aggressively as we can with limited bandwidth, because that's the, that's the other thing. And certainly in the middle of the global pandemic, um, we don't know what, what's going to happen with education funding and education cuts and um, what it's going to mean. I know that our students were already in, in the most vulnerable of circumstances. And so certainly this pandemic has um, exposed some of the inequities in, in so many ways. Um, and we're going to have to move really aggressively uh, to make sure that that does not have, that they don't lose, you know, that there's not significant learning loss because the consequence over time um, will be on generations. It won't just be the students who are in the system now. It'll be their children and their children's children who will feel the impact of what happens in our present moment. And so we've had to really shift and pivot rather quickly um, to be able to effectively support, you know, our leaders and our teachers. Um, and so it's a, it's a challenging time, but I still feel like it um, is where I'm supposed to be. I say to the CEO every now and then, I sometimes get these reminders that I made the right call um, in coming to Baltimore City. Um, and certainly um, that, that has not changed for me. Doesn't mean the work is not hard, right? Um, but I definitely think it's where I'm supposed to be. That's beautiful. And you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to too, too far reduce or summarize what you, what you laid out but um, initially, it sounds like the first phase is the awareness and the self-work before the actual 
one-on-one student working shift. And one of the things that I've noticed, at least when you look at, when you look at one, one aspect, like restorative practices, right, which has gotten a lot of energy uh, across the country, the way that it looks like operationally is, you know, there's like an office of a few people centrally that are deployed to do like one training in, for the entire city. They could call it, they make it called in, in a crisis situation um, within a school site. There's like one person that could be well versed or is very interested in doing it, and then they get called in <laughs> in a crisis situation. There isn't like this. Um, there isn't a. There isn't a command or like uh, understanding site wide um, around how to ensure that it's happening. So one person gets over relied on, and they kind of become the person the kid goes to. If like there's you know they're in trouble, they get kicked out of class or whatever. I've seen a lot of head nodding. This is like, does this sound familiar? Yeah, because the same thing happens with equity work. It okay. becomes I need to call. Let me call Dr. Durant. Let me call the equity office. And you know, and people people often will say things like, well, you know, you're the expert, so I need your lens on this. You know, and I often correct people and say, I'm an expert in me. That that's what I'm an expert in. I'm an expert in me. The reason why sometimes people are attracted to me in the way that I lead the work is because all they're getting is authentic Tracy. And so part of what has to happen is people got to live in their own authenticity. And so people have to be honest about what they know, what they don't know. We make a lot of decisions to education based on things that we think we know or things we think we understand because as educators, we're supposed to know everything. And that's a mistake, right? And so one of the things that I have been really holding the line on is I am not carrying the banner of equity for the entire district on my back. Equity is everybody in the district's work, right? Just like family and community engagement, there might be a family and community engagement office that kind of helps manage processes and maybe does training and offers support. But family and community engagement is everybody in the organization's job because central to what we're trying to do, if we center students, How are we centering students and not making sure that we're engaging with them and their families? That's everybody's work. So if a parent calls me or if I see a parent at an event or an activity, the way that I interact with that person or not is going to leave a taste in their mouth about Baltimore City. It's everybody's work. Special education. There might be a special education office. But if there's a student in the building or in the virtual space, if there's a student who is receiving special ed services, not a special ed student, receiving special education services, it's everybody's responsibility to be part of the team that is educating that child. And that comes in a lot of different forms. It's all about work. But with equity work in particular, equity work is absolutely the kind of work that people will just call the equity office. And I'm always pushing back. When people call me for counsel and they want me to give them advice, if you interview anybody who's had to work with me in the district, what they will tell you is they leave with more questions than anything else. Because I'm always asking, let me ask you a couple of questions. Let me offer some things for your consideration. Why don't you think about it, reflect, and why don't you come back to me? Like, I'm not giving you answers. And I'm not policing what you do and how you do it. This is about helping you to build capacity. My job is one of support and service. But equity work, if it's central to what we are saying we're going to do, it's everybody's work in the organization. Now, we may not, we may have different levels of capacity. And so the question is, how do we do a level set to make sure that we, you know, have some, some foundational understanding that is shared? So that is how I'm leading my work. But if you allow it to, it will become the work of the one person, whether that's restorative practices, 
social emotional learning, you know, all of those kinds of things can become the work of a person or a group of people instead of having people own, you know, their role in making sure that we all are, are sophisticated enough to, to serve our students well. And, and you tactfully said earlier in the interview, uh, some people need a new calling. Um, uh, is that how you phrase it? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. And, and I bring that up because um, one of the things that, I, that, I've, uh, that I've asked our HR department and, and, uh, and our district leadership is like, how do we hire around this understanding? Or how does this become something that is a part of our credentialing program? So there's a baseline. The baseline is different once people start in schools. Like who's responsible and who can you fire? You know, <laughs> so like when we 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 let we had an initiative here that was centered on supporting Black students specifically, and uh, the office gave they you know they gave consult and reports and had a few different programs here and there, but no principal reported to the office, and and so like pers- there was no real accountability around the experience of black students in schools, which is like problematic for me. And that could just be like my own thing, right? I'm like, okay, who's going to get fired if this don't change? That's kind of, like, that's because otherwise, why would it change? And, 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 this, and that could be a limited way of thinking that is, uh, needs to shift. For, but there is no real uh, accountability. I'm talking about accountability. Um, how is that structured with your office? Yeah. So I think the, so it's, the it's, um, it is a more nuanced question than just, you know, how do you go and manage accountability? I think the question of, um, like when I say in our, when I referenced our policy and I said that we say that what we're doing is a direct contradiction of our stated values and beliefs, right? Um, I was on a town hall with some young people earlier this week and the young people said, you know, how will we know that you are listening to us? How will we know um, that what we are are offering is going to lead to some change? And the response is simple. When we when we show up differently, when when you see our actions change, right? So the question of accountability is for me always are we clear in articulating what our expectations are? Because oftentimes when I'm meeting with people and I'm and I'm coaching them. My questions are sometimes, so tell me what our value is. Tell me what is um, what we're trying to achieve. Like, what's our goal? Because if our goal is, if we're clear about the goal, right, and we align our actions with what we say we believe, the outcomes are going to shift. If the outcomes aren't shifting, either we need to change the actions or we need to question whether we really believe what we say. So in Baltimore, we say we believe all students can lead and thrive. So if all students aren't leading and thriving, how are we holding ourselves accountable for that? So, okay, so what does leading and thriving mean? If it's academically, it's like some of the things we talked about earlier. So it's not just let's get more black kids in the advanced academics or IB or any of those programs. It is what's happening in the program. So part of what happens around accountability is if the measure is just that I want to get more kids in the space, that's easy. All I got to do is put them there. If the measure is that I actually want students to learn, right? and I want them to be successful, then what I'm doing is I'm looking at the data that's available to me and I'm looking at, well, what are the grades of these white students and what are the grades of these black students and why is there a distance between them? What is the cause of that? But part of the, the thing that happens is the, the bar is often so low 
when we're talking about students who are, you know, who are marginalized or students who are sitting in those vulnerable conditions, if the bar is this low, when we do anything that gives us a little bit of, of movement, we get excited. Well, the bar is down, the, the bar is up here, right? We're trying to get up here, but we're so glad that we're getting some movement that we stop. So the question of what are we really holding as the value? So the value is not just to increase numbers. We can do that. You know, when, when a lot of districts went to um, SAT for everybody, you know, for SAT for all, and so districts across the country, and they still do, um, you know, pay for all, you know, juniors or seniors to take the SAT. The, the question of what's the value that we're holding? Why are we doing it? So if your answer is it's just about access, then you can check the box on that. But if the answer is that it really is supposed to help with the trajectory of a student's life, then what are the other things that have to happen? So when the test scores come back, how are we evaluating um, where that student might be in their schedule, like in their classes, and how we make sure that whatever we learn from that data we receive from either the PSAT or SAT is informing the student's schedule, right? Is informing what, if the student is doing parallel enrollment, what classes they should be taking in parallel enrollment so that they're not taking remedial education when they graduate. Like there are all of these kinds of things which all start with what are we holding as the value? Because if the value is just about numbers, then we're going to hit that accountability mark. But then when you look at whether or not the students are applying to college, like in the case of the SAT, applying to college, doing well, you know, well placed in the college, whether they actually graduate. Because see, for me, the measure is not whether we get them in. The question is whether they graduate. And I think that has a direct connection to what happens to them, you know, in the K-12 environment. So the question of accountability has to be linked back to what is our value? Like, what is our ultimate goal? And I think part of the accountability question becomes difficult because we actually are not clear about what our objectives are. We want to we graduate kids. We want kids to be college ready. Here's what I'm going to submit to you. If there, there are some schools in, in our state, not just in Baltimore, but in our state where, you know, 80% of those students, when they go to college, take remedial math. I'm going to submit to you that those kids aren't college ready. Because college ready means take, taking college level courses. College ready doesn't mean I get a high school diploma, I get into the college, and then I have to take developmental or remedial courses. Mm, that's not college ready. So the question of accountability becomes, what's our objective? What's our, what's our bar? And I think we're not clear about that in a lot of our work that we're doing, which is why the accountability is hard to manage because we're not even clear about what our starting point is or really what we're trying to get to. Right. We want to increase graduation rates. OK, so we got kids graduating now, but are they going to college and graduating? Are they getting jobs that pay them a living wage to be able to take care of their families? What's our what's our bar? Right. Once we get clear about the objectives, I think then the question of how we will hold ourselves and each other accountable will be much clearer. But that's the harder work to do. What are we really trying to achieve? And then that becomes a value set that becomes a. Well, if we do this for this population, like if we could just do this, whatever that this is, instead of really setting up the conditions for people to have, you know, full and whole lives. And I think that is also the the beauty of what equity work can mean for, for school districts in particular. We're, we're, we're approaching the top of the hour. And there's a, there's a couple of things I want to, a few more things I want to ask you. Um, a, a few pro- provocative statements I want to submit, like, uh, uh, ask you to respond to also is for terms of, these institutions, right? Um, the first one is uh, public education will just fail black people. Like it, it will only fail black people. It's, 
there's no there's no hope for black kids to succeed in it. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I I mean I fundamentally reject that. I think that um and and I'm gonna speak com- completely, you know, transparently. I mean, I, 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 that's that's kind of how I move through the world. But I will tell you that um, I could not get up and do my job every day if I thought that that was the case, right? I think that the question of how far um, I am willing to go in my role how far each of us are willing to go in our role to make what we believe be true. I'm going to go back to this idea of beliefs and outcomes. When you believe something, you do everything in your power to to make it so. When I was working on my doctorate, I'll never forget this. I did an accelerated program at Morgan State University, and there were seven of us who started at the same time. And when we started, we said, we are going to graduate 0505. That was our graduation, May 2005. And we said that in 2002. We even got t-shirts made. 0505. There are seven of us. All seven of us are graduating. We're going to do it together. Those moments where it got hard, we went back to 0505. We believed it could happen. And so every action we took was helping us get to that outcome. When I, you know, my kids were young. If I, if I believed something was going to happen for them, when it didn't, when, you know, I always tell a story about my son in potty training and he's 20 now and he would just die if he ever knew I was still telling this story, right? <laughs> but, but the question is, when I knew he was, you know, we were trying to get him potty trained. My husband and I worked real hard to get him potty trained. It was like, we tried some things. You know, if, if anybody has kids, you know, you, you know, you try some things, you do the pull-ups, you do the, you know, underwear, you do all these different kinds of things. And for me, it was never... He's never going to be potty trained. For me, it was, we got to keep changing our approach until we figure it out. The same has to be true. And this is how I lead for the 80,000 students in Baltimore City. If I believe that all students can lead and thrive, every action I take has to help me get there. And so for some people, that's going to mean you might need to find another job because if you're not all in for these 80,000 kids like you would be for your own child, there's no end of the earth that I wouldn't go to for my own two. That's how I lead about these 80,000. And if you're not willing to do that with me, you may need to make some different decisions. But I fundamentally believe that public education does not have to fail black children. It has not failed all of us. And for those of us who it is not serving well, we need to be like real honest about the ways that it's not serving us well. And we need to adjust and we need to do some things differently. And we need to reinvent. We need to stop using these old tools to be able to educate Black children, right? We need to do some new things. We need to be more creative. We need to be innovative. And we need to go back to what we know works for Black children. Part of it is we don't know what works for Black children because we never really had to contend with what it takes to educate a Black child because the dominant context has not required us to do so. That's why this all of this stuff around ethnic studies and African-centered, you can't have conversation about the need to have African-centered education without talking about why it is that African-centered education, you know, is, has been, in, in essence, you know, it has been stripped of, of us. So we got to, we're going to use this now. That should have just been a thing, right? Like with all these black kids and you know, people who are descendants of, you know, you know, Africans, like, hmm, there, isn't there some value in that kind of thing? But the question of why it has not been valued all of this time, you can't skip over that recognition, that reconciliation before we do some of the other things. So I fundamentally, you know, hold that um, 
education does not have to fail black students, but we can't do what we've been doing. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result. What we're doing is not working. The system is working just fine. It was never designed for us. So why are we trying to play in this system? Let's tear this one up and create something new. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've noticed uh, that I've become aware of on my role on the school board is, is how, and I'm guilty of this at times, like how like leaving a mark or uh, ego or um, personalities, it just like completely distracts, you know, and in some of these closed session discussions too, not even closed session, but just in the nature of how people are talking about the work, it, I often have noticed that like kids aren't a part of this at all. Like protecting the system is what it, is what's happening here. Like the system will first protect itself at the expense of the people in it, you know, and um, and that's deeply problematic. And that's also starts with that internal work. And so I agree with what you're saying around tearing it down and doing something else. <laughs> but I, I do want to get into like you, right? Because uh, you know, not that you, you signed up for challenging work, so it's not like you know you you, you know you know what you're stepping into, but. Like, how do you spend some of your downtime? Like, what's your what's your downtime sort of like? I so don't like getting this question because I probably don't do a good enough job. Um, I will tell you. Um, so the last couple of months, um, right when we had the, the the shutdown and we went, you know, shelter in place and we we pulled out of schools, we went virtual. Um, the pace at which you know I was working and we were working, it was a lot. It was, you know, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, weekends. It was call after call after call after call, right? Because I think there was, for some people, this feeling of just until we get back to normal. I just got to work like this until we get back to normal. And, you know, earlier this summer, um, you know, my husband started to do things like, okay, you still at the table? Like, because I've, con- I've converted my dining room to my office just because I need the light. My office doesn't have light. So I'm like, I need light. So I've taken over the whole dining room. I got a printer. I got all my stuff. But the the downside of that is, that I'm like in real close proximity to my family room in my kitchen. So my kids, my husband, they, they kind of all like, it's, it's, they're working. You know, like, you know what time it is. And my daughter who is, who is 22 and, and we have just this amazing relationship. She will come and she'll like slide me a note and say, it's time for you to stop working. Like I need you to stop working. And so part of what I do is when my family calls me out, I know that that's a moment for me to pause and, and to stop. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm wrapping up. I'm wrapping up. I'm getting off. Um, the other thing that I will do, and I will tell you, I wasn't doing this before. Um, you know, I, I'm spending more time like outside, just kind of relaxing, listening to music, you know, that kind of thing. I've always been a TV person. So I'm still definitely doing that. I'm watching my shows. Me and my daughter have like date night. and We catch up on our TV shows and stuff together. And I'm really fortunate that I have a community of um, some of whom are my business partners and some of my very close sister circle. And it's that community where I find um, where I find peace. It's it's where I get to be naked, if you will. I get to say this is all of the stuff that's going on in my world. Um, and we hold each other up. I think that um, doing this work isolated um, will take you out, especially Black women. Black women who do this work and have to do it in isolation because most of us getting these kinds of positions and similar to how I started, I was in office of one, right? And most people who are leading equity offices, whether you are an ED like I am, a director, a chief, 
a deputy chief, whatever title they want to give you. Oftentimes, these offices start with one person, right? And so recognize that that is, that is how heavy the load is. You have to have a community of people. And so um, I do things that bring me black girl joy. So whether it's with my good girlfriends or other kinds of things, um, trying to smile and actually now setting boundaries. So it, it is a boundary of, you know, unless, unless it's the CEO, really, I'm, I'm not doing an 8.30, 9 o'clock call. Nope, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing a 7 a.m. call unless it's something urgent. And there are those moments where we have to do that. But this, you know, getting off of one call onto another. I mean, I literally have my computer, my work phone, my personal phone, and I'm logging off of one, dialing into another one, trying to do that. And I'm at home realizing I still haven't, you know, taken care of myself. I still haven't gotten something to eat. I haven't drank anything all day. And so just setting some parameter around taking care of myself, because if I am no good, if I am depleted, I cannot do this work. I cannot be of service to others. And giving the 80,000 students that we're serving and the 10,000 of my colleagues, giving them just what I have left is actually not going to help us do the work that we're trying to do. So I've got to take care of me so that I can do the work that I've been charged to do. Uh, I have a few rapid fire questions before we, that was beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing that. You ready? Mm-hmm. Close out. Yep. What's up? Okay, let's do it. Do you meditate? No. What's one book you would recommend? Oh my goodness. Um, post-traumatic slave syndrome. Post-traumatic slave syndrome. If we're talking about as it relates to work, if we're just talking about a good read, um, Gabrielle Union's book. We're gonna need more wine. Okay. Shout out to Gabrielle Union. <laughs> uh, do you have a motto? So I don't know if it's as much a motto, but I'll tell you um, something I have been saying a lot recently as I've tried to care for myself and do this work earnestly. Um, I am not prioritizing your comfort over my humanity. What personal weakness can you forgive in someone? That's a hard one. Um, you have to come back to that one. <laughs> okay. You can say not what. I ain't forgiving nothing. <laughs> um, you know, okay. because you, you come I, back? I, try to, I, I try to hold like, one of the things I often say is, am I trying to be right or am I trying to communicate? And so when people show up as their authentic self, the question is, who do I need to be to honor who they are so that they can honor who I am? And so that that's just kind of, so that question is like really, really challenging for me. Okay. Last and final question. I appreciate this hour. First of all, before I ask it, I know you're very busy. Last and final question. Who's going to win the presidential election? Mm-mm. Um, I can look here. I will, I will say this. Um, I am a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Um, and this D this Delta is riding with that AKA. That's what I'm going to tell you. Okay. Okay. Right on. Well, Delta broke my heart one time, (laughs) you know, but I made it. (laughs) Uh, this is Dr. Durant. Uh, leading the good equity work in Baltimore City. I really appreciate her time. I appreciate her spirit. And uh, yeah, we're rooting for you. Thank you. Thank you. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. I'd like to thank Dr. Tracy Durant for sharing her story and passion with us. 
advancing an equity agenda is a tall order for any institution. Uh, we are with her and all the good folks invested in that process. I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, and those that continue to subscribe to the Cook on Monday Morning YouTube channel. I'm grateful to all of you for your support. Thank you. If you enjoyed the discussion, please share the podcast with a friend. Help us grow this community of doers. Please also take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also on Apple, uh, give us a rating and review. It helps folks find it and get this good content. If you're interested in starting a podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During the Pandemic. It goes over all the equipment that I use and some book recommendations that are helpful for you to consider. You can also get the full link to the article in the description box. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive social impact. Uh, We do that by building strategic partnerships between businesses and government, recruiting diversity talent to high impact roles, and helping companies drive impact in the communities where they do business. If you'd like to learn more about that, send me an email, info at stevoncook.com. Again, I'd like to thank our listeners and to the people that make this podcast possible. I'd like to thank our videographer, uh, David Topete, and our copy editor, Fernando Encinco Marquez. And we have a new copy editor. Her name is Devin Scheckinger. I get up every Monday morning with the intention to create value and showcase love to the people that keep our cities moving. They are our teachers, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers, garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. They are our employers, the folks creating jobs and keeping our economy moving. They are our gig workers, stocking our shelves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food. To all of you, this podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn. Shout out to all of our listeners also in Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to because of you. Until we meet again. Peace, peace, and we out.